Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Parents, grandparents, teachers, aunts, uncles, anyone with children in their lives has probably wondered, how is the pandemic affecting the kids? What will they remember from this time? Will it be traumatic? Or will resilience help make it a memory that isn't harmful? And might there even be some benefits for them? Just like grown-ups, there's no one-size-fits-all answer here. A lot probably depends on the child and their circumstances. So what are the things that make a difference one way or another? And what are the ways that adults can help kids get through it? We're talking about that today with Dr. Hansa Bargava, Senior Medical Director at WebMD. She's also a board-certified pediatrician and a mom, and she's been blogging for WebMD about the effects of coronavirus on children and families. Dr. Bargava, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Carrie. There is a lot to discuss here. The first, most recently, there was a report that came out that 97,000 kids in the U.S. tested positive for coronavirus in the last two weeks of July. And that was from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association. Now, testing positive doesn't mean that they were all seriously ill. So what is the latest on how common or rare it is for coronavirus to make kids and teens sick? Yeah, and that's a great question. So although they're less likely to get infected, kids can get sick too. And we're probably seeing an increase right now because of summer activities, summer get-togethers, going to the pool, etc. And the fact that COVID is on the rise and not under control in many states right now. The good news is that most kids have mild illness and infection can be controlled by preventative measures. That is good news. Um, tell us about what those symptoms are. You know, kids get sick from, from so many things, especially when they're around other kids as, you know, that will be the situation as, as kids start to go back to school in some places. So when should parents consider getting their kids tested for the virus? What's appropriate given the situation right now? Absolutely. And I would just start that by saying that, you know, we, prevention is the greatest cure in this virus by a long shot. And I think that we just have to remember as parents that we really want to prevent and reduce the risk of infection. So that does include masks, it does include social distancing, and it does include hand hygiene as well. But if you think that your, kid, your child is sick, some of the symptoms might be similar to colds and coughs and flu. So you, your child might uh, have a sore throat, they might have uh, congestion, they might have a cough, and some of them might have fever as well. Some of the interesting non uh, typical symptoms of flu, uh, cold and flu, which happen with COVID, are actually loss of smell or loss of taste. So if your kids are exhibiting any of these signs, uh, then I would probably consider having them tested or uh, talk to your pediatrician or your family doctor about that. I will also say that, again, just pointing to the fact, I know we're worried because of all of the cases that happened in, in July, but the actual total number of child COVID cases reported right now by the CDC represent less than 10% of all COVID cases. So I just want to quell some of those fears. But having said all of that, if, you, if your child has symptoms or you're worried, definitely reject your doctor. 
certainly, because this can be serious, right? I mean, we've heard reports of young, you know, children ages seven, nine have actually passed away from the virus. Yeah, I, you know, I think that it can be serious. It's, it's much more rare in kids. And again, just pointing to the statistics that are out there right now, thankfully, less than 0.8% of deaths of COVID are in children. So 99% of deaths uh, related to COVID have been not in kids. So that's good too. But having said that, you know, you, if, you're, if you're worried, uh, then you should definitely call your doctor about that. That's good to keep in mind. Um, early on, a few months ago at least, we were hearing about something called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children related to the coronavirus. Um, can you give us some of the details there? What does that condition look like? How is that affecting children? Yeah, absolutely. And these, the, this was a relatively new diagnosis that occurred, new, a new kind of syndrome that doctors were seeing happening to kids who were infected with COVID. And that was basically these kids would come in with fever, but also other symptoms that involved other systems in their body, as well as, you know, COVID positivity, as well as some inflammatory markers that were going up as well. So initially we thought it, it wasn't a new syndrome, that it could be something called Kawasaki syndrome, which happens very rarely to children. But then as we followed the, re the research and the science and the data, we realized that this was something new that was related to COVID and you know, can happen in very rare circumstances to kids. Now we're learning a lot more about it, Carrie, but again, luckily, the number of cases is very small compared to the number of children in the United States. It's actually right now, the CDC is reporting it's about 186 cases across the United States. So if you look at that number, it seems really large, but then if you look at, for example, the flu or other numbers, then you understand that for the millions of kids there are, it's a smaller number. So not saying that we shouldn't be worried about it, but also putting it in perspective and knowing that it's, it's very rare. Having said all of that, we definitely don't want our kids to get COVID and we need to do those preventive measures that I talked about. That makes sense. I think a lot of the early messaging that came out about coronavirus in children was that kids don't seem to get it, they seem to be immune. But after a few months of this pandemic, what do we know about the, how hard it is or how easy it is for these kids to spread the virus? And that question is just so important, especially, you know, as camps try to open up over the summer and schools try to open up or don't open up. You know, unfortunately, you know, initially the research showed that kids may not be spreaders. As we got more research, more science, more schools opened up in Europe, and we were able to see that information, we found that under the age of 10, they still don't spread very much at all. It's much less than adults. But over the age of 10, it seems that ages 10 to 18 can spread as often as adults. So again, you know, if schools are considering opening, if we're, if we're thinking of sending our kids, the preventive measures become even more important, as does the community, uh, the community being involved in helping with those preventive measures. That makes sense. I want to move on to the physical aspects of being at home so much for these last few months. Kids wouldn't have been going to sports or other activities like they did before the pandemic started. 
So are you expecting to see physical fitness take a hit? Absolutely. Physical fitness will take a hit. And the unfortunate part about physical fitness is it's not just the athletes that take a hit, but across the board, you know, kids are probably not moving as much. There's online school. Kids tend to gravitate towards screens. And physical fitness or physical well-being is really important in everything, whether it's mental well-being or preventing comorbidities or diseases from happening. So I think it's really important that we as parents and families try and make sure that there is some level of physical fitness in our households. And what about mental health? This time has obviously mental health has been such a a huge factor for people of all ages, but how do you think this time is affecting mental health of children in general and what would help with that? Well, Carrie, I'm, I am worried. As a pediatrician and a mom, I think kids have been at home and a lot of the buffers that we use to help with mental health, such as physical activity, as you mentioned, family gatherings, social gatherings, going to school, having you know, a, a life outside of just the four walls uh, has, has decreased because of social isolation. I am worried. Uh, you know, our rates of anxiety were already high as a nation. Most recently, one third of adults are suffering from depression and anxiety. And certainly kids, you know, will feel the effects of that and be part of that as well. So there is a few things that I have advocated using to help alleviate the stress. On a hopeful note, I think we can get around it. And I can go into those if you'd like. Please, I'd love to hear it. Sure. So stress. So first of all, there's, I usually, I call it, you know, my five point plan. And that is really the buffers against stress. So one of the buffers against stress is physical activity. So moving your body actually helps you elevate those endorphins that helps you feel good. So there's so many benefits. So if you can go out with your kids, whether it's for a walk, if it's for a run, if it's just throwing hoops or throwing a ball around, that really helps. But work it into your day. Make it a must-do like you brush your teeth. So moving that body really helps. Sleep helps. I know that seems like such a, well, you know, yeah, sleep. But actually, it does really help. And it's been shown to decrease uh, irritability, crankiness. And just remember, if you've ever had a night where you've only slept four hours, how you feel, <laughs> that can <Right>. actually help <laughs> as well. One thing that people don't talk about as much, Carrie, is actually hugs. <laughs> I know hugs seem mm. silly, but actually hugs, so what's happening with us when, with stress is that our, par- our sympathetic system is constantly activated. So we're always in that fight-flight response. We see news, we're, you know, we're stressed out. But what hugs do is it actually balances that by activating the parasympathetic system. So hugs release oxytocin and those feel-good chemicals uh, that can decrease your stress levels. So definitely, if you're in the house, give those kids hugs. Like, if, you know, they're stressed out, you're stressed out. Hugs really, really help. Actually, my daughter asked me for a hug this morning. So I gave it to her. I'm like, oh, okay, well, oh, that's yeah. good. <laughs> She's a teenager. So yeah, that doesn't happen very oh, often. Well, yeah, that's a that's a big moment then. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's those are the top three. Number four is actually socialization, even in this world of COVID. So They did a really interesting study in Finland because we have been socially isolated. We can't get together in groups. They looked at whether you can have some relief of stress by interacting virtually. And what they found was that you actually can. So certain platforms where you can actually see somebody's eyes when you're talking to them uh, and facial expressions actually gives you that social response of buffering down that sympathetic system. So even those kind of interactions can help. And then of course, if you can see somebody in a small group, six feet away outside, then 
do it because again, you need that. We all need that social interaction to help. And then lastly, uh, you know, I'm going to put this fifth one in, which I think is really important. I've only understood the even more the importance of it because of course I'm doing it at Emory University, but it's meditation and what it does, the science behind it has shown that it actually increases connections between our amygdala, which is basically the fight or flight king, uh, mm -hmm. and our prefrontal cortex, uh, which actually buffers responses. And that's where our executive function lives, essentially like, hmm, let me think about this before I respond, <laughs> part of your brain. And the more those connections, uh, the more there are connections between those parts of the brain, the, the more buffers there are uh, in terms of stressful responses. And that actually decreases your stress, your IL-6, your cortisol, and that's been proven. So I know it's a hard task. I'm a working parent, so I struggle with it as well, I'll be really honest. But even if you can start with five to 10 minutes a day with your kids, that will be helpful in terms of decreasing stress, but also increasing focus at school and helping with the mood elevation as well. So, so many benefits with that. Interesting. I would never have thought of teaching kids to meditate, but I guess that's to your point, that could be a good way to kind of boost their focus and help them take a few minutes just to think about themselves or think about other things for a while. Yeah. I mean, it's just a reset, like just like you reset your phone or you reset your computer, it's like a reset for our brain. Hmm, that's very interesting. Have you been doing that with, with your kids in the last few days, weeks? I, I am trying, Carrie. I am battling the battle, but <laughs> <laughs> we've had a couple of sessions where it's been successful. So I told them yesterday that this was going to be part of uh, their life at least three times a week for 10 minutes. And there were a lot of groans, but we'll try and get it done. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting into what would have been back to school season in a lot of parts of the country. School districts are taking different approaches depending on what state they are in, what city they're in. And once that decision has been made in your local area, what are your tips for parents whose kids are going back to school, whether it's in person or online, only at home or a blend of the two? Yeah. And I think parents are in a very unique circumstance right now for all of that. And it may be a changing target as well. So you may start up physically, you may go to hybrid, you may go to online. So, and, it, and it'll be dependent on the community out there. So if, if kids are going in for the hybrid model or physical in, you know, in real life or physically, then I cannot say more how important it is to do preventive measures. So talk to your kids about the masks. The masks must be worn and they're not easy to wear for a long time. So practicing at home, doing it yourself, making sure that they're doing it correctly and finding a mask that's comfortable for them is really, really important. Also, I think it's really important for them to understand why they're wearing masks, like having those conversations regularly with them about why and how it prevents respiratory droplets from going across and how if somebody talks to you and your spit lands, their spit might land on, on their arm and that's what, how the virus travels. So actually having those discussions with them constantly and frequently is just as important as telling them to wear their mask as well. So the other things that I think I would recommend for physical school is also making sure the kids are aware about social distancing so they can say to Maddie or to Johnny that, hey, you know, we're going to have a, a bubble here, personal space, arms length. So please, even if you're wearing a mask, don't come closer than, you know, the airplane arms 
that you know that that can be used to describe the the length of where they should be. I also think that it's important for kids to learn new habits that can help them prevent not just COVID but flu, strep, etc. And that's not sharing drinks and food. Like if right. we get to do that now, you get so many benefits. It's not just COVID; <laughs> it's actually everything. So if you can just help them do that, and lastly, I would wipe down those devices. Those devices get touched a lot. And you know, I would wipe those down twice a day at, at the least. Take those devices from your phone, from your kids and, and wipe them down. So those are some of the some of the tips I would do for physical learning. That makes sense. Okay, what about kids who are going to school virtually only? So virtually, it's going to be hard uh, because, you know, as parents, we're going to be overseeing that, but we can do it. And I think for that, my tips would really be to talk them through it, make sure they're not in bed when they're online learning. They need to get up at the regular time, make it, make them have breakfast, have them sit down. Hopefully there's breaks in between the online classes that mm -hmm. you can talk to your kids about so they can have some move breaks, whether it's just running around the house or dancing in space, like in, in their spots right, for 10 minutes. That can really help. And then also for working parents, if there's a way that you can come up with pods with maybe one or two other families, that could help as well. It's similar to carpools so that you know, you can work from home. Some of the complaints I heard from parents was that it is impossible to work from home and oversee online schooling. But if you could work that out with one or two families that have the same restrictions as you that aren't going to large con you know, parties or not wearing their mask outside, but they're following those rules and you just stay with those, those are called pods and that could help alleviate some of the stress. So speaking of, of pods, what, are you, what do you think are the benefits of, of pods for kids who are going to school virtually? I think the benefits of pods are first and foremost, keeping the families safe. And that is because if you just interact with, say, nine or 10 people on a constant basis, and you don't go out of that bubble, it's like forming a bubble almost, then basically the germs are only spread in those nine or 10 places. There's not more germs coming into that bubble to save. If you go and if you have larger groups, then you have those people bringing in all the people that they've actually interacted with to you. So it's actually not just the person that you're interacting with, but the 10 people they may have seen in the last 10 days. So that's why the pods are really effective from an infection control perspective. From a social perspective and a structure perspective, I think it just helps kids learn better because they will have somebody else, there's another peer that's kind of doing the class with them. Uh, it's that same classroom feel, except it's not, you know, in a large, uh, large group. And lastly, for the parents, I can't tell you how worried I am about the parents, Carrie, because there's a lot of parents who have to work, even if they're not working, you know, this is another job on top of their plate. And, you know, the stress level of parents is already high. When the stress level of parents is high, the kids will feel that stress. So I think for the parents, it's nice to share that work, just like we share carpools. That makes sense. Do you think there are some kids who may actually be thriving in a virtual school situation instead of in person? I think the one silver lining of having to be in virtual school is that you're not running around to 50 things, right? You actually have time to breathe. And in our society, prior to COVID, there was a lot of kids who would just literally be on the go all day long. So right. I think that has a benefit there. Um, and the other thing is that, yeah, some kids do better because they don't have the distractions in the classroom. Some kids do better, some kids do worse. It really depends on the kid. 
What are your top concerns about how the pandemic is affecting children on a broader level, including, including their stress levels? There's lots of different answers there because kids can come from different life situations. So first, let's, let's talk about children who live in a healthy, stable setting with good internet access, those kinds of things. What are your top concerns about how the pandemic might be affecting those kids? Yeah, so if, you, if you're fortunate enough to have a healthy home, uh, which is economically stable and you have digital access, then I think probably my top concern would be just the stress from the pandemic itself. Now, how, it really depends on how you frame the pandemic to the kids and honestly, how much news they are seeing and how many conversations are going on on that news. So framing the pandemic, look, we've been through things before as a society. There's world wars we've been through, the 1918 epidemic, I mean, 9-11. These are things that do happen. And so framing it that way with your kids is really important that you know these things happen and we will survive and we can get on top of it. We just need to do the things we need to do and come together. Uh, you know, so I think that's really important. The news is also another issue that previously kids didn't face before. So they all have devices. My own kids have devices and they're constantly getting feeds for news. I do worry about that, Carrie. Because mm-hmm. a constant news cycle even stresses adults out. That's a proven fact. Right. So for kids, I think it's, it can be very stressful. So I suggest, and I have suggested to my own kids, you don't need to be watching the news. Turn off the feed. You can see it once a day, and we will discuss it. But to put it in perspective and to take those media fasts are really important. That makes sense. All right. Um, let's talk about kids who don't have reliable online access and their families maybe don't have a lot of resources. What are your concerns for those kids? That is what I'm really concerned about too, and that is because there is a large percentage of kids who don't have digital access, whether that's a laptop, computer, or even broadband access. And if there's multiple kids in the family, there's many families that don't have three computers for kids to use, so they're constantly trying to figure out which computer that kids can use. The other aspect of it, about all of this is that one parent is having to, you know, in, even in a family where they do have two parents, you know, are fortunate enough to have the two parents work, one parent is having to stay at home now, and that's uh, falling mostly on women. So women are leaving the workforce because of that, and that is an issue onto itself. But a parent essentially needs to be home overseeing this as well. So in families where economics are a concern because they don't have uh, the computers or the or the broadband access, and then you are also taking someone out of the economic you know network as well. That is almost a double whammy for those families. So it is concerning, and you know uh, that is why we're hoping that we can come to some solutions soon. The other group of people that I worry about are the are the kids with learning disabilities or special needs. Those are kids who get a lot of services at school. And those are hard to mimic at home, especially if the parent is juggling a job or other kids or trying to put food on the table and doing the regular daily duties of parenthood. So that group is also a concern. Lastly, I'm concerned about kids who rely on the lunch programs. And that's one in six families, actually, in the United States. That's a large proportion of families who are now going to be wondering where that meal is coming from and maybe have lost their job or are under economic strain. What about your concerns for kids who are really young right now versus 
you know, older kids or teens? Are there different sources of stress or things that parents should watch for depending on the age of their child? Yeah, I think so for sure. The, you know, young kids are somewhat protected in that they don't remember things as much. You know, memories tend to form after five or six and then they really tend to form around age 11 or 12. So they're somewhat protected, but even younger kids can feel parental stress. Uh, older kids are going to be hearing the news and, and be more stressed about, out about that. So some of the things that we can do to help those things is honestly, again, the media fast that I talked about for the older kids, but for the younger kids, just trying to maintain a little level of normalcy, whether that's playtime or, you know, reading books to them. And lastly, and really importantly, I think it's really important for parents to take care of themselves, Carrie. Like if you take care of yourself, your stress level will be lower uh, in some of the ways that I talked about earlier, but also your parent, your kids can feel that stress. I mean, we did a, we did a survey a long time ago at WebMD, not a long time ago, probably a few years back of, you know, symptoms that kids would have and the symptoms that they would have of stomach aches or headaches were very much related to the stress in the household. So mm -hmm. if you can help your own stress, that will help the children. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good to remember. I do want to flip ahead to whenever this pandemic is all over, uh, has to end someday, right? In the long run, how big of an influence do you think this time will be on children? I think a lot of parents are worried that, you know, what happens right now is gonna have long-term effects down the road. What are the things that you think could be tipping points in how they look back on this time? I think that you can look at it both ways. Yes, maybe it could be terrible down the road, but maybe this is a time where we can help it to build resilience in our children, right? I mean, a lot of us parents before this pandemic came in worried that these kids, they don't know, they, you know, there's an age of instant gratification and, you know, generally they get what they want whether necessarily working hard for it. But now we have this issue that everyone has to deal with. And this just one of the silver linings, maybe, maybe a way to build resilience, to talk to your kids, to tell them that, hey, you know, this is hard and this is tough, but we can get through it. And, you know, frankly, this is life, you know, things happen in life and we need to figure out how to navigate around them, not just be upset or paralyzed by it. So I think this is a great time to build that resilience and also maybe get them involved and say, hey, you know, we want to wear masks. How do we get people to wear masks? How do we prevent things? How do and talk about the principles of prevention, talk about the principles of the illness and how it's spread, but most importantly, how we come together as a family or a community to help each other through this time. So I really feel like it could be a great learning exercise for kids, at least if there's nothing else that comes out of COVID. <laughs> That's true. I like what you said about helping kids understand that this is gonna happen in some form, probably again in their life. And it's what matters is how you handle it and how you figure out how to go on and, and get through something. So I like Absolutely. that a lot. No, I think that's the lesson. If we could, as parents can teach that lesson that we need to, things will happen in life. We need to learn how to navigate around them. Certainly. And everyone is obviously having their own experience during the pandemic, not to put on rose colored glasses or minimize what's going on for, for different people, but are there opportunities here to at least have some parts of this that are a little brighter for children? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that, that this has afforded is more time at home, more family time. Some of the families that I've talked to in the last few months have said, wow, you know, this is terrible. And, uh, you know, I'm really worried. But 
I've never had this much time with my kids ever. And so now we're playing board games and we're cooking together and we're able to do things that we never did because we were always running around on that, on that treadmill. So I think that that's one thing. And the second thing is really to build resilience with children, to let them understand that things happen and that we will get through this. So, and lastly, I have to say this, and I keep saying this, we have, and letting them know that we got to work together as a community, you know, doing the hand washing, the masks and social distancing may not seem like we're helping ourselves individually at that moment. But in fact, we are helping ourselves because if we do it as a community, we can get through it and go back to opening, opening the country up. That's true. We all have a part to play. That's something that has become very clear in the last several months. Dr. Hansa Bhargava, thank you so much for talking with us today. So glad to be here, Carrie. We wanted to get another view on this topic, so we're also talking today with Dr. Christina Bethel, a professor in the Department of Population, Family, and Reproductive Health at Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome to Health Now, Dr. Bethel. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do every day. Great. Well, as you said, I'm a professor in the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and the best summary I have is that I work on advancing a new integrated science of thriving that really brings together our knowledge about child development, human potential and human development with the sciences like neurosciences and epigenetic sciences and polyvagal theories and all the things that tell us about the centrality of how our relationships with each other early and across life are the most powerful forces for our healthy development and well-being. And as part of that, you've done a lot of work on something called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Tell us more about what those are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the origin of adverse childhood experiences, first of all, has been around since the beginning of time with people observing impacts when children are exposed to a lack of support emotionally, don't have safe, stable, nurturing relationships. But the term really got codified during uh, the 90s, the mid-90s with the CDC and Kaiser Permanente doing a study to try to understand why adults who had issues with obesity were losing weight and then gaining it right back in many of them. So they asked questions about their childhood, not intending to discover what they discovered, but what they discovered was an incredible link between those who were not able to keep the weight off and who had other health behaviors like smoking or drinking or addiction, difficulty with relationships, and what their child experiences were. So it turned into a study that created a risk variable called adverse childhood experiences that looks at 10 different types of risk that crawled across being exposed to neglect, emotional neglect, or physical neglect, uh, a physical abuse or, or emotional abuse, sexual abuse, but also things in the family that can disrupt the stability and safety and nurturance in the home in those day-by-day interactions that are so important. Things like mental illness, illness that's severe and untreated, or alcohol and drug abuse, and also domestic violence, being witnessing witnessing uh, discord between your parents and or whoever's in the home with you uh, as a child. So those are what they are, but they're really just indicators and flags for times in our lives where we didn't 
have the safety, stability, and nurturance that we need for our healthy brain development, body development, language development, and social development so that we can then learn and grow and evolve throughout life well. So we started measuring this with adults, and a lot of my work has been how can we measure this earlier in life among children and youth and start to see early what our prevalence is and what are the things that are helping mitigate the risk that comes from having those exposures. That's very interesting, um, especially because I've heard a lot of people say that the pandemic of COVID-19 qualifies as an adverse experience for children and for adults. Um, can you tell us a little, I mean, it sounds different from, you know, children mm -hmm. who have, have these sort of traumatic experiences mm -hmm. that you just described, but can you make that connection for us? I absolutely can. So there's the adverse childhood experiences that were developed and studied that have a lot of literature behind them on the impact on development and well-being and all of that that I described. But when things happen on the outside in the community and also social determinants like being exposed to poverty or violence in the community, they can add to and be also considered an adversity in and of themselves. They are different than the adversity that really most impacts attachment and healthy development within the home, but they add to and also can be themselves an adverse experience, especially if they're not buffered by that connection and um, healthy relationships in the home. So of course, it's a shock for any person at any age, and especially children, when their structures and routines are disrupted, when there's uncertainty, and there's a sense that the adults around you are not making meaning out of the uncertainty that gives you a sense of hope, that's very dangerous for children in particular. So it is contextual. Of course, it is a trauma, but it's really trauma arises from how we meet what it is that we're exposed to. And if we're not able to meet it with a sense of connection, possibility, talking it through, continuously staying connected with the emotions that arise, then it really can become an actual embedded trauma that shapes and impacts our body, our brains, our identities, and our beliefs, which really are the portal through which our future development as adults or children are brought about. Can you tell us some of the specific ways that this pandemic mm -hmm. as an ad through the lens of an adverse experience, some of the specific ways that it's affecting children? I'd imagine yeah. there are some that are obvious and maybe some that are not so obvious. Absolutely. Well, in terms of the obvious ones, if it's affecting a child in a way that is creating stress that is not buffered by the ways we know we can buffer stress for children, then you will see things happen. You can witness it. It's actually observable. There can be issues with sleep, with being able to relax and breathe, uh, less engagement in life. Things that they used to do before aren't being done. They're not wanting to do art or play or move or sing. Their ability to learn, they can't focus as well or even be interested and curious in learning and also might not really feel very affectionate or appreciative of life or grateful in ways that they might have been before. So their emotions are different. And there can be either a withdrawal inside or there can be an acting out. And those are sort of the swings of what we do when we're dysregulated and trauma is either we contract or we can become chaotic. So I think that there's a lot of ways you can see it that way. And then, of course, if it is becoming a toxic stress situation where it's not buffered and 
where we're not able to bring the protective factors to fore, it really does impact the immune system, the endocrine system, the neurologic system of a child, just like any other adversity where they don't feel safe and they don't feel secure and they don't feel nurtured. I wonder, does, does like the length of time that a child is experiencing something like this, does that play into sort of the severity of the effects that you might notice? I'm just curious because it seems like, you know, this has been going on for several months now mm-hmm. and it may not end anytime soon. I'm just curious if you know if there's a factor there. Well, whenever there's a gap between what we expect and what's happening or what we feel like we need and what's happening, it's a source of stress. That's for everyone. So if children are uh, not continuously being updated about what's happening and continuously being reassured, then it can turn into really a toxic stress of not knowing. And sometimes families don't talk a lot thinking that that's actually the way to best handle it, to kind of not talk about it, compartmentalize it, and just kind of go on as if nothing's happening. So it's really important to keep talking about it. And if, of course, all of us have the need to continuously adapt to our environment. That's why we're still here after millions and millions of years. So this may become something we have to adapt to, but if we're not adapting well, because we're not um, able to talk about it or we can't adapt because the continuous issues of not having food or housing or anything like that, then it absolutely becomes an embedded toxic stress that has to be dealt with at some point. While it's happening, it can be dealt with, but then afterwards, there's a healing process that will need to happen for the ways that it has affected the child's identity and their their nervous system regulation can be stuck on on or stuck on off, one of those two, where they're kind of shut down or stuck on on and can't shut, can't relax. So absolutely, it is the length of time. But again, resetting expectations and normalizing this is still happening and we're still safe and we're still going to find ways to stay connected are highly regulating. So it's never a sentence. It's never a, you know, our, our, what's happening is never, is never a prediction fully of our future. It's really just a probability based on what else is there, the protective factors. Right. Is there any one group of children who you think are particularly at risk for these outcomes during this time? Who, what, are, what are the groups that you're most worried about? You know, I'm most worried about the very large number of children we already know are living in homes that are experiencing a lot of stress, often with family and parent, family members and parents and grandparents who've been living with trauma for generations. And that's part of what they're already exposed to is, you know, sort of dysregulated nervous systems, if you will, not being able to really maintain the kind of connection and also families that are stressed for just survival and don't have buffers or ways that they can stay connected with each other, even though that's happening, which some families do better than others. So those that are already experiencing adverse childhood experiences in families that are not aware of the need to consciously address that and get help and build skills and ask for help, those are the children I worry about. And there have been, in many parts of the country, Um, observable increases in more extreme child neglect and abuse, but also we're talking about not just the kind of abuse and neglect that would be showing up in an emergency room or be reported. It's really the chronic daily stress of these families that ends up taking the biggest punch over time. So families already having that 
and who don't have the support they need in terms of job opportunities that they can, the parents can actually, is it's really through the portal of the adults in a family, in a child's life that we help a child. So if the adults aren't well, it's very hard for that child to be well. So I worry about families where the adults are not well and where the family is not feeling safe. Right. I mean, there's been so many new stresses that have been harder on, on some families for sure. Obviously, you know, job losses hitting a lot of folks and some, you know, a lot of families losing loved ones to COVID-19 even. Exactly. What are some ways that we can help children who've had direct losses like that on top mm-hmm. of the things that all kids are going through, like not being mm-hmm. able to go to school or, or spend time with friends? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I think it is good the way you said to distinguish between the obvious losses, mm-hmm. like the, a death or not being able to have routines kept and the opportunities to socialize, go to school and learn in that way, because you can still learn in many other ways out, out of school that I know a, family, a lot of families are doing. But there's also this thing called ambiguous loss, which is just this sense that you've lost something, but you don't know what it is. And that sense of community and that I live in a safe world, that even though it's hard, it's safe anyway, somehow, we're going to figure it out. And I think that figure out ability feeling is really a very big ambiguous loss for people where they feel like we can't fix this. This is actually nature that's bringing on issues. Racism is another big issue that's happening. And that's actually something we have more, we can act on, because that happens to be about our mindsets and how we are with each other. And so that's more of an empowering kind of stress. But the pandemic has this ambiguous feeling and you don't know what's happening because we're not in control of it. So I think it's important to recognize the losses that are direct, but also this lingering feeling of this ambiguous loss that you can't really put your finger on. That's just really, we are not in control. Well, first of all, we often aren't, but we think we are, but this is really a vivid example of that. So some of the ways that, you know, the the fortunate thing is there are many things that we can do and that people throughout all time have done in order to survive horrific pandemics and war and other things and come out potentially even stronger. And it's never fun to say, I had to go through through something hard to grow, but it's often the way life is. Mm -hmm. So the good news is, is that positive experiences, when we define and study them, like we did in our recent research, are often explained as being what happens, how we meet each other when things are hard. So the most positive thing people can often say ever happened to them in their life was how they were supported and cared for when something really hard happened. So building on that concept, we can identify a lot of things we can do to support children in this time. What might some of those things be? Well, first thing is, you know, we know that in order to create healthy attachment and a sense of safety and nurturance, many things are required. So those same things are required here. And it's very biological when children feel safe. It's in their body that they feel safe. And the things that create that are warm interactions, really warm interactions, even in the face of stress, body language that isn't threatening. So if we're approaching to be aware that just like any animal, if you approach too fast, there can be um, a lot of just fear that automatically happens. And so to be aware of our body language around children, to keep maintaining a sense of safety that's through safe ways we use our bodies. Tone of voice. How are you speaking? Are you speaking uh, in a stressed way, in a tone that's keeping the energy stressful? 
or can you speak about what's stressful, but in a way that is um, not alerting the nervous system of your children mm -hmm. that something isn't safe. Also, eye contact when, you know, at least it's like um, a very basic brain development that we have for con feeling connected to is that you can see that someone sees you mm -hmm. and that they can sense what it is you're feeling. And that is eye contact is one way that we do that, where you're looking at a child in a way with warmth, with body language and with your own calm self as much as you can. And then with the intention that they feel seen and that helping them see that you see them and it's very regulating. So I think that, um, and then a give and take where you're noticing the child and you're commenting back on what you see, giving them a chance to say, yes, that is what's happening for me. You know, making it safe for them to share feelings and then really, really having that connection around things that really matter, giving children when they can talk a chance to talk. And when they can't talk, you have to do it differently, but that presence and really holding that presence is very important. And, and the, you know, being there is not the same thing as connecting. Connecting is a lived experience. It's very different than just being in the same room. And to make sure you create those connecting times on purpose where you put your phone down, you turn off the TV, limit TV anyway, I mean, the recommendations are no TV for kids um, under a certain age. Right. <laughs> but we can have digital media now to keep in touch with families. But right. it's really making the connection and not just being there. And it's through those things you can actually intend being warm, watching your you know, body language, tone of voice, eye contact, and making sure there's a give and a take. Those are all very basic things that happen, can happen in pretty much every interaction you have with your, mm -hmm. with your child. Um, mm -hmm. That's interesting. I was expecting you to, I was expecting there to be some larger plan that you would have to have, but it's really those simple, basic things that you would do every day. Yeah. Well, the other list is really more functional, which is watching for really getting good sleep as much as possible, mm -hmm. helping your child learn how to breathe and be aware of their body, like the box breathing, breathe in for, hold for, four, breathe out for, four, uh, let it out before and then hold and, and then bring it in. It's that box breathing. It's very simple, but it's very regulating for the body, especially if you're having trouble sleeping, looking at digestion and making sure you look at the foods you're eating and giving yourself as much as possible healthy water, having times every day where you move and sing or do art, reveal, basically reveal through art. It's very healing play imagining what it would be like if we weren't in a pandemic, making up a story and really letting the imagination move and think about things that made you happy that it really your body starts responding as if it is happening. And then taking this time to build skills like, oh, this is a time we haven't had before. We need to actually learn some skills here and making that something that is an opportunity and not just a, oh, it's so hard because there are skills of relationship like how being able to do what I just said is actually often not happening. As right. simple as it sounds, it's not usually what we do. So learning skills, it's actually a learned thing. It's not a mysterious moral value, you know, right. that some people have and some people don't. It's actually, if you didn't get it, you don't know it. You know, we, we have a cultural need to really develop our relational health and our relational skills. That's so interesting. Yeah, that, I guess that makes sense that if you if you didn't get it as a as a child, you may not you may not know what you were missing. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's like you don't know what you don't know, and so you do your best. I mean, all parents, with very few exceptions, love their children, 
but we learn what love looks like as we grow up. And some people think it's loving to not talk about feelings. Mm -hmm. It's loving to not look at your child and try to make, how, try to let them know you see that they're uh, either shut down or acting out and might have some emotion going on. But what we know is that it's important that we don't neglect that. That that's really the most healing thing and to also prevent the difficulty from becoming a toxic stress that lives throughout our lives. Right. It may sound odd, but are there times that something good comes after an adverse childhood experience? Not that the experience itself was good, but that it didn't drag the person down permanently. Mm -hmm. What's the role that resilience plays without putting it back on that person to, you know, pull yourself up and, and rise mm -hmm. above this? Well, I love that you said that last part because we never do that. We're always a part of any person that's been able to rise above it, let's say, had support, had resources, had something that came along, somebody that saw them the way that I was saying, which is very, very healing to be seen and understood and know that someone sees and understands you and cares when things are hard can activate all manner of resilience and creativity for seeing how can I learn from this? How can I grow? And of course, just like the salmon, you know, we're kind of like the salmon right now. We, we don't have an opportunity. Giving up is not an opportunity. We have just to have persevere. To, just we have, have to keep to. swimming upstream. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it usually pays off, you know, and that's a life force instinct that I think we have a healing, a natural healing capacity. So, you know, Harvard uh, Business School did a study on leaders, and I think all the top leaders they found had adversity as a child. And that's not to say that they're, they're fine. Succeeding in business does not mean you're fine. It's really succeeding in relationships and mm. in your sense of your own self being having innate value, having something to contribute, having a feeling of purpose, staying engaged in life. Those are the things that create success. And those are the aspects of flourishing we can learn. Even in adversity, we can stay engaged. So we have a little flourishing test, which is feeling engaged in life, feeling you have a sense of purpose, feeling that you, you are, have relationships that mean something to you, recognizing you have something to offer and you, you, you are having, getting a chance to offer it, even if it's your smile and that you have a sense of value in yourself. Those are things that make up flourishing and flourishing can happen and often does through adversity in the midst of adversity. Many, many people who are dying from diseases or have many diseases are flourishing and many, many people who have no illness, no adversity are not because they're, they operate on double tracks. So it's a dual continuum. So we can resource that, that other continuum of resilience and possibility now, and even without the pandemic, we need to be doing that because the reports of hopelessness, our suicide rates, we're coming into this with a real um, already present sense of disengagement and uh, lack of skills for relating and healing trauma. So this is actually a time when we could really, really catapult ourselves and our consciousness and our skills forward. So, so yes, I mean, I would more say who, who, who is in the world who's you know, really gone forward into the fullness of their expression hasn't come through adversity. I don't think there's very many. Right, I mean, to your point earlier, this has been happening as long as there's been conflict and disease mm -hmm. and, and everything mm -hmm. like that, people have somehow found a way mm -hmm. to, to move forward. So Yeah, and there's two big, like you can I have these six Ps. I don't necessarily want to take you through all of them, but two of them really stand out is that capacity to be present with what's happening. 
and be able to hold and contain with support the experience that you're having now. Because trauma often comes from children who can't uh, process what's happening when they're having neglect or abuse or exposed to lack of contact that helps them develop. So staying connected to what is and that presence is a real thing. And then purpose, making meaning, having staying engaged in the attempt to understand, to imagine and grow, and to stay with it. So that sense of presence and purpose are really what's underneath creating what many call transformational resilience. I know you talk a lot about ways to sort of mitigate the adverse part of adverse childhood experience and make something positive instead. What are some simple things parents can do to help their kids process what's going on in a different way? Yeah, so of course I already mentioned the day-by-day, moment-by-moment interactions Mm -hmm. of warmth and body language, tone of voice, eye contact, also tending to the daily things like sleep and food and digestion and breath and drinking water and movement and play, daily habits. But there's also other things that you can do. I mean, certainly I mentioned positive childhood experiences and that's making time to really connect and not just be there, putting down your phone, really being present, holding space, even if no one's talking, just being there is incredibly healing. So we've kind of talked a little bit about that, but there's also exercises you can do. So there's one that is very effective called the wheel of life. And this is where you notice somebody, you kind of say, well, what am I experiencing or thinking or something that might be upsetting me, let's say, um, which happens a lot right now. And you say, well, what is it that you feel in your body when you think about that? Well, what are the thoughts that you have? What are the feelings that you have? What does it make you want to do? If you just could just do anything, it makes you want to run away or it makes you want to, what does it mean? Then what do you choose? And you start to build up the sense that we're very, very rich beings. And we have at any time actual sensations in our bodies, thoughts in our mind, emotions all the time. They never go away. We have instincts to protect ourselves. And then we make choices. And the more we can break it down an experience into that wheel of life, sensations, thoughts, emotions, instinctive action and choice, the more skilled we can become to hold our whole experience, not allow it to embed as trauma because we're aware of it and make choices on purpose. So the wheel of life is a very, very good exercise and there's some things available online. I also do something called finding the jewel which is finding something that if you see something that's upsetting, you just pause after whatever else needs to happen and you, you know, because something gets expressed, but then you say, well, what is it that you really care about that makes this so hard? And underneath every difficult feeling is something positive that you want and care about that's good to want and care about. I want peace. I want to see my grandmother. I miss my friend. And then you immerse yourself in that longing. How much do I love my friend? How much did we have fun before? Bringing up as a resource our actual care and love and hopes and longings and past experiences of that as a resource and then to turn back to what's hard now. And you'll be amazed at all the new ideas that come or the shifts in our bodies and brains where either it's not as hard anymore or we get an idea, a creative idea comes forward. Because whenever we're stuck in trauma, we're stuck in habit. And when you're stuck in habit, you can't learn. A baby who is traumatized can't learn. 
because we're just habituating around what we feel we have to do to survive. So I talked about box breathing also, mm -hmm. and then also having a family resilience plan where everybody talks about families can do this, even with young babies, they can't obviously talk and say it, but what is it that we can have as a plan and how will we know when we need to institute it? Okay. So when somebody's having a hard time sleeping, what is our plan? When somebody is looking down and not talking for days or not talking or not, in, what is our plan? Because we know the signal of when we're starting to go into distress and we have a plan and those things are usually relational or ways of speaking, making rules like no, no talking bad about yourself, no call it name calling. You don't call yourself a name like, oh, I'm so stupid or um, bad for feeling. It could really no name calling. And then the other thing is very practical, which is for families that have pediatricians to go to your well visits because mm -hmm. it is the purpose of a well visit. We, as part of our research, we create something called the well visit planner, which is available online for free to families for them to do two things. One is figure out where they're at right now and what they think might be going on with their child developmentally. So they can just take it in a couple minutes and find out, oh, I think these issues are happening for my child, where they're at, where they are age-wise, where they should be developmentally, and are there any other concerns and priorities among all the things that you're supposed to be able to get help with that really seem like they would help me right now? And you can do even virtual well visits, televisits, and they can be very healing, especially if the family's empowered to know how do we think I think we're doing. So that, that well visit tool is really to help them reflect and then identify their priorities and then come in with that resourcefulness of I need help with this. I know about my child's development there. Uh, 12 years, 12 months old, and there's these two things in that developmental checklist that I think might not be quite on point, but they used to be. Can you help me? So reaching out to have those well visits and stay connected to the help that's available is really key. That's so yeah. interesting because so many of those things you mentioned are things that really kind of give back, uh, give a sense of control to both adults, but also to children, yeah. um, which I think could uh, mm -hmm. Seems like it would it would matter a lot in a situation that's far outside of any one person's control right now. Absolutely. I mean, there's three big hallmarks for healing trauma for people who've been through horrible trauma. There's actually whole journals dedicated to how to heal. And, and you know, they do all these studies and then it comes down to these things that are actually really obvious, right? But the research had to happen to, like, we had to study positive childhood experiences to say the most positive experience is how you're met when things are hard which isn't necessarily what somebody would think of. So in some of these therapies, the three big things are staying in touch with your sensations, like that wheel of life, being able to actually in the moment feel your own body or sense into that for your child and mirror back so that you have a sense of connection to yourself about what's actually happening now. And when you have trauma, you get disconnected from that. You don't know when you're hungry, tired, thirsty, mm -hmm. happy, sad. You just kind of start to disconnect. So that's the big one. The other is exercising your preferences and even knowing what do I want? What do I not want? What are the little things that could help me right now in getting creative and not just shutting down and thinking, oh, I need to get back to school. Well, there's probably something right now you want to mm -hmm. that you can exercise your agency to get. Like, I think I want to write a card to my friend or get that book out and read. Um, and the last is maintaining always a sense of self-compassion which is a real resource studied extensively now, being taught as a central skill in medical school as well. Um, so there's a book called Compassionomics even. So there's, real, there's a lot of science behind this, what I'm talking about. We just don't, we haven't integrated it into medicine 
but it really is our medicine is behind the times of the science of what does it mean to thrive in adversity, heal, be well, even if you have illness. And then of course, all that feeds into better health behaviors, more likely to heal if you do have illness. Well, lots of things that I think will be very helpful to people who are living through such a challenging time. Dr. Bethel, thank you so much for talking with us today. Mm. It was fascinating to hear about your work in this area. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time.